I'm Anton Hellman. And I'm Teresa Chin. And, and this, this is the, the Journal Jam, Jam Podcast. Podcast, where we blend interviews with leading researchers of important emergency medicine journal articles and the best of crowdsourced social media-based opinions of emergency medicine providers from around the world. You'd think ketamine was in the ED drinking water. Not only has this NMDA receptor antagonist been used effectively for procedural sedation and rapid sequence intubation, but also for things like delayed sequence intubation in the agitated patient who you need to intubate to buy time for pre-oxygenation, for life-threatening asthma, as it's got bronchodilatory and anxiolytic effects, as an anxiolytic for severely agitated psych patients and excited delirium syndrome. Ketamine's even been used effectively for refractory status epilepticus and for head-injured patients, as it's thought to have neuroprotective effects. If all those indications weren't enough, ketamine may be an effective analgesic for patients with moderate to severe pain in the ED. And that's what this journal jam is all about whether subdissociative low-dose ketamine is effective to help alleviate pain, the pain that we see with our patients in every shift. Oligoanalgesia occurs in up to 43% of patients in the ED. So wait, you're saying that 43% of the patients that we see that have pain don't get enough pain medication to control their pain adequately? Yes. But I think that there is the case to be made that we could be more vigilant and relieve that suffering. Absolutely. So let's see if ketamine can help us out. So I'm psyched to have my friend, colleague, and self-described EBM nerd, Justin Morgenstern, the brains behind the fantastic First 10 EM blog, conduct the interview for this journal jam with Dr. Francesca Budwin, the lead author of the article from November 2014 entitled Low-Dose Ketamine Improves Pain Relief in Patients Receiving Intravenous Opioids for Acute Pain in the Emergency Department, Results of a Randomized Double-Blind Clinical Trial out of Academic Emergency Medicine. So without further ado, here's Justin Morgenstern kicking it off with why this study is important and why opiates aren't perfect. It is my absolute pleasure to have the opportunity to speak with Dr. Francesca Budwin, the lead author of a randomized controlled trial published in academic emergency medicine studying the use of low-dose ketamine for pain control in the emergency department. Dr. Budwin, can you explain to me why you decided to study this? Yeah, thanks so much, Justin. So I think that if we all look back on recent developments in emergency care, we can see that we've made these great strides with things like heart attacks and sepsis. Yet pain is probably the most common thing that we treat as emergency physicians. And yet when it comes to pain management, we're basically doing the same thing that we were doing 50 years ago. We essentially have the same tools in our belt that we did 50 years ago. I think ibuprofen came on the market in the early 60s, formulations of oxycodone around the same time. And that's basically still the stuff that we're doing. So I think there's this real need to explore alternatives to opioids. Absolutely. So in your paper, you state that one theory of why low-dose ketamine might be beneficial is that we could limit our use of opioid medication, potentially limiting the side effects of things such as over-sedation or respiratory depression. Do we know how common these side effects are in the emergency department? Or in other words, how important is it really that we have an alternative to opioid medications? I think there's definitely two sides to this coin, right? Optimizing pain control and minimizing adverse events, not just of opioids, but of all medications. 
and in particular, opioids, um, as we all know, have come under a lot of fire recently because of their role in the opioid epidemic. So you mentioned things that are, you know, very important to us, like respiratory depression, delirium, altered mental status, but also the potential of just putting more opioids out there to contribute to the opioid epidemic, addiction, abuse, things like that. So I think that we can all acknowledge that opioids themselves are a double-edged sword. I think they're probably a very needed pain medication, but come with some consequences. In terms of the um, adverse events outside of the potential for abuse, dependence, things like that, I think that respiratory depression, over-sedation are a real concern. Earlier this year, we published a retrospective chart review looking at adverse events in the emergency department, and at least within our hospital system, found a number of serious life-threatening adverse events, such as respiratory depression, over-sedation, and altered mental status. So I think that you know opioids do have these potential side effects, so I'm not saying with this study that we should completely disband the use of opioids and not use them altogether. But I think that there is a need for alternatives and adjuncts, partly because of the adverse events, but also in part because sometimes opioids are not effective for pain control in all patients. Now, let's talk a little bit about background of ketamine. So ketamine is a non-competitive NMDA receptor antagonist that decreases central sensitization, the so-called wind-up phenomenon, and pain memory. At so-called subdissociative doses, that's between 0.1 and 0.6 milligrams per kilogram, ketamine maintains potent analgesic and amnesic effects without the trans-like state we get with procedural sedation at higher doses like 1 to 2 milligrams per kilogram. This subdissociative dose was discovered actually in a paper in 1971, so it's been around basically since the year I was born. Well, what about the literature on ketamine since 1971? So most of this literature has come from the surgical and oncological literature. In particular, there was a Cochrane review looking at ketamine postoperatively, and they found that it did have opioid-sparing effects. So what about the EM literature, the stuff that we really care about that's been done recently? Teresa, what does the EM literature show when it comes to low-dose ketamine? In EM, the bulk of the literature for ketamine is in other uses other than for pain control. There's been a lot of prospective randomized trials from single centers or like associated health centers that have looked at analgesic effect of that subdissociative dose of ketamine and morphine in combination that we're talking about kind of today. So there's Miller et al., which used ketamine at 0.3 mg per kg, showing similar pain reduction compared to morphine 0.1 mg per kg. There's also Johansson et al., which showed that there was a 4.4 point reduction in their pain score that they used with a ketamine-morphine combination as compared to 3.1 points reduction in the morphine alone group. And then there's the more recent study, Motov et al., where adults with a pain score of greater than 5 were randomized to receive ketamine at 0.3 milligrams per kilogram or morphine at 0.1 milligrams per kilogram. The change in the mean pain scores was similar from about 8.5 to 4 in about 30 minutes, and there wasn't any difference in the incidence of rescue fentanyl at the 30 or 60 minute mark. And in that study, although it wasn't quite powered for it, they did not find any serious events in either group. 
Okay. Well, now that we have a little bit of a background about the non-EM and EM literature and using low-dose ketamine as an analgesia, let's hear what Dr. Boudwin has to say about the methodology used in the study, the doses of ketamine used in the study, and the outcome measures. So in your trial, you had three arms. There was placebo, there was ketamine at 0.15 milligrams per kilogram and ketamine at 0.3 milligrams per kilogram. How did you decide on those doses? So we looked at what ended up being the most common doses used in the surgical literature. Um, Unfortunately, that body of literature is very heterogeneous. And low-dose ketamine is considered anything that's really sub-anesthetic, meaning that it would not produce general anesthesia or moderate sedation slash conscious sedation. And generally, this is thought of as a dose of less than one milligram per kilogram. So obviously, that's a pretty wide range. Uh, We also noticed, looking at the literature, that there probably was a dose-dependent relationship with adverse events. So it seemed important to study more than one dose, and it also seemed probably important to start at that lower range of doses. And again, those two doses were commonly studied doses. So one fine point about methodology Your primary outcome used a measure called the summed pain intensity difference, or the SPID. I was not familiar with this term. Uh, Can you explain it for me and maybe describe to the casual reader of your paper uh, how they might translate the numbers you report into their day-to-day practice? Sure. Yeah, so this concept of SPID is not something that's immediately familiar. It's often reported in pain trials, but not something that we regularly use in clinical practice. But I think um, it is, once you understand it, definitely intuitive. So take, for example, patient A gets a study drug, patient B gets the placebo, and at two hours, both of their pain scores are are both four. So you might conclude that these drugs were the same, but in fact, you know, it really matters where they started from. So if patient A started at a 10 and went from a 10 to a four, and patient B went from a six to a four, you know, their change in pain was actually quite different, and the effectiveness of the drug is therefore um, can be interpreted as quite different. So this concept of just the change in pain or pain intensity difference, the PID, um, is actually, I think, what's most clinically relevant. And then so the next question you might ask is, how is their pain sustained over time? And that's really where this concept of SPID or summed pain intensity difference comes into play. And so, again, just to put in the concept of like hypothetical patients, if one patient's pain starts at a 10 and by hour one goes to a four, but then is back up to 10 by an hour two, that's very different than the person that goes from a pain score of 10 to 4 and then stays there for the whole two hours. So their pain relief was initially the same, but patient 2 had more sustained pain relief. And so the second person would have a greater SPID or summed pain intensity difference. It would be a 6 versus a 12. And again, those numbers are not really intuitive, but the concept is, right? The change in pain and the change in pain sustained over time. So I don't know that we'll be calculating SPIDs in clinical practice, but when we're evaluating drugs, analgesic drugs, it makes sense to look at this as a a marker of effectiveness or efficacy. So there's well-published standards of what constitutes a clinically significant change in pain. And so a pain intensity difference of two, so that's at one discrete point in time, would be considered a clinically significant change. So some people argue that you should calculate their SPID as a percent of that, and that a clinically significant change would be 33% or greater. So Teresa, based on what Dr. Boudwin's describing here, would this study pass your sniff test for a well-done RCT? I think their methodology is very rigorous, but this is a pilot study. And the size of the patient population probably reflects that. I think that this is really important to bear in mind. 
because they're going to be underpowered for finding things like adverse events, which are far more rare than the pain reduction. So one of the things that you should bear in mind when you're reading papers like this are what kind of stage of research this is at, right? And if you read the paper the way that they represent their findings and their conclusions later on, they do very much kind of point towards future research, maybe clarifying things more. And I, I think that this is the kind of paper that shows a great amount of promise. And I'm really excited about what this investigatory team has in stock for us in the future. But again, this is basically a pilot study to look at how they would operationalize all of this. What I think is really cool about the vast interest in this topic is that there's a great amount of potential to start looking at harmonizing the scales they're using, harmonizing the outcome measures so that we can, you know, put everything together for bedside clinicians like you and I, Anton, so that we can make a decision as to whether or not we can change our practice, right? Uh, I think that what was really impressive about the recent sepsis studies that all came out is that they all got together a priori and said, we're all going to look at at least these outcome measures so that someday we can put it all together into a great meta-analysis and change practice. I think that since there's so much interest in ketamine, I might put it out there that if there's a researcher or two out there listening, what about doing something like that so that we can easily grasp, based on all the great work that everyone's doing, how to change practice? Together we're smarter. Exactly. And I think that we have the tech to be able to put it all together. So anyway, to those aspiring researchers out there, Maybe it's time for us to kind of talk about how we can put all the things together. Okay, so that being said, let's hear what we've been waiting for in this study, the main results. We found that both ketamine groups had greater pain relief than the standard care group, which was morphine alone, over a two-hour study period. Um, In addition, we found that they weren't different from each other, but it's important to note that this study was not large enough to detect the difference between the two groups. So we would have had to power our study, um, have much greater numbers to look at a difference between those two ketamine groups. But then when we look at the data in a little bit more of a more granular fashion, it appears that the higher dose ketamine group had more sustained pain relief. Specifically, when we're looking at that two-hour time mark of our study, it appears that the analgesic effects of that lower dose of ketamine, the 0.15 mg per kg, has started to dissipate and that there was no significant difference between that dose of ketamine, the 0.15 milligrams per kilogram, and the standard care group at two hours, but that the higher dose, the 0.3 milligrams per kilogram, still had a clinically and statistically significant difference from the standard care group. So while we can't really say that those are different from each other, there's a hint that that higher dose of ketamine has more sustained pain relief. So that's first point. And then the second point is that it also looks like the proportion of adverse events in in the higher dose of the ketamine group was greater. Um, Again, the study was not powered to detect adverse events, but I think that if we had greater numbers in the study, there would be something, probably something there with the adverse events as well. So although your study was not powered specifically detected, it looks like there's a dose response relationship, both in terms of pain control and in adverse events. Correct. All right. It makes intuitive sense that the higher dose would provide better pain control, so it's not a surprise that the 0.3 per kilogram dose, although not statistically significant, provided better pain relief than the 0.15 milligram per kilogram dose. And again, you'd expect more side effects with the higher dose. And although the study wasn't powered to detect a difference in adverse events between the two doses, 
there was a trend towards more adverse events with the 0.3 milligram per kilogram arm. Let's get a little bit more into the side effects you're likely to see when you give ketamine in subdissociative doses. This study provides us really excellent descriptions of all the adverse events that happened in each group. Can you give us your thoughts on what the side effects uh, we might expect to see if we adopt low-dose ketamine in our emergency departments? Yeah, I can tell you as part of the study and also as part of my clinical practice, which is more anecdotal, I think that we are going to notice patients experiencing dysphoria and potentially some tachycardia as well. We saw this in the study you know, this is actually in contrast to a recent paper that was published out in California that was a large retrospective study of, I think, about 500 plus patients. And it was a, a chart review looking at adverse events. And they actually detected a pretty low rate of adverse events in the single digit percentile, like six to nine percent, I think. But I think that that is probably a limitation of the methodology and that the actual number of adverse events that we see in practice might be higher. In the study, we also saw patients that had uh, dizziness, nausea, and vomiting. Now, these things are also very similar to what we might see with opioids, particularly nausea, dizziness, and the biggest thing that may impact the use of ketamine from a clinical practice standpoint is this dysphoria. I think uh, that may influence patient satisfaction with the drug and the population that we give it to, and then as well as the as the tachycardia. You know, the tachycardia was transient, but that may be undesirable in a patient that has known coronary disease or something of that nature. Yeah, Teresa, it sounds like based on this study and other studies that have looked at adverse events compared to morphine, it appears that the serious adverse event rate with low-dose ketamine is very low and probably comparable to morphine. So let's be honest. Morphine's not exactly the safest drug in the world, but ketamine is at least comparable in terms of its side effect profile. Now, one of the things that leads to adverse events in using these kinds of medications is medication error in terms of dosage. And the tricky thing with ketamine is that it comes in three different concentrations, the 10 milligram per mil, the 50 milligram per mil, and the 100 milligram per mil. I know that in our hospital for procedural sedation, we usually use the 100 milligram per mil, and that's what we're used to. So when we're using ketamine for analgesia, it's usually the 10 milligram per mil that we should be using because we're using much smaller doses. So that's just something to be aware of, that if you are going to use ketamine for analgesia in your emergency department, make sure you double and triple check the concentration that you're using so that there's no medication errors, because that will definitely lead to adverse events. So one of the things that confused me about this study, Anton, was that there were three arms, right? There was the morphine plus placebo, the morphine plus low-dose ketamine, which was 0.5 milligrams per kilogram, and the morphine plus 0.3 milligrams per kilogram. And although the ketamine groups reported lower pain scores, they all needed the same amount of rescue morphine at the two-arm mark. So does this mean that all the patients just want more and more and more and more medication all the time in the emergency department? I guess so. Or was the morphine running? I'm not sure. Like, maybe this is a question that hopefully the author can answer. All right. Let's see what Dr. Budwin has to say. One point that jumped out at me about the study was the pain control was better for both of the ketamine groups, but the overall dose of rescue morphine was the same for all the groups. Can you explain that to me? 
Yeah. So I think that this is kind of an interesting point and highlights a couple things, both about our practice and the way that ketamine works. So in terms of um, our clinical practice, there's a couple of things about the study design and I, I think of what we do as physicians. In terms of our methodology, treating physicians were allowed to provide rescue analgesia per their practice. They were provided guidelines, but ultimately this was left up to them. And then secondarily, we saw that rescue analgesia was not always provided to those who met criteria for it. And I think that this is probably a reflection of what actually happens in practice. I mean, you could argue that this was just our hospital and our study site, but I think unless we're giving all of our patients PCAs, this likely happens elsewhere as, as well. So I think that patients aren't always getting you know, rescue analgesia when they need it, number one. Number two, I think you could argue that this kind of hints at a, a morphine-sparing effect of ketamine or that ketamine has the ability to potentiate the, the effects of morphine. And so there's definitely a dynamic between ketamine and its action on the NMDA receptors and the way that opioids work. Um, so I think that you could argue that despite similar doses of rescue analgesia, the ketamine group had more effective pain control. So let's just do a quick review here of the good nuggets. The patients who you should be thinking about subdissociative low-dose ketamine in are those with more than just mild pain. So a pain score of greater than 5, who you've tried a good therapeutic dose of opioid on, say 0.1 milligrams per kilogram of morphine IV, so like 7 to 10 milligrams of morphine, and then still have a pain score of greater than 5 or who aren't able to tolerate the side effects of the morphine. Other patients that might benefit from ketamine analgesia are the polytrauma patient who you're worried about their low blood pressure or worried about causing respiratory depression with opioids, sickle cell patients in whom you've had trouble controlling their pain with opioids, and possibly patients with chronic pain syndromes like the dreaded RSD who come in with an exacerbation of their pain. Yeah, and so I think that this is where we need to remind ourselves of the size of this study in particular. But at the end of the day, if you're going to go on to adopt a new medication in your armamentarium, I think we need to be looking at knowing more about the adverse side effects and also which patient populations in which we should not be using this medication. So I think that it's nice the way that she described the patient population that they've cautioned people against, but that's actually a wide breadth of patients, right? Liver disease kidney disease, elderly patients, patients with unstable psychiatric disorders. Um, and a lot of these things you might not be able to screen for sometimes when you're just immediately putting on the pain medication. So I think that we have to be wary about in whom we start this pain protocol. Sometimes in medicine, we take really good studies, but then over-apply them because in practice, it's easy to forget about exclusion criteria. So which patients would you not give low-dose ketamine to? Yeah, this gets a little bit back when you're saying, you know, sharing the guidelines and, and who I think that I would have probably hesitation in giving this to elderly patients, those who have, you know, known cardiac disease, particularly anybody with active coronary disease, I would, I would not give it to. I would be concerned about the tachycardia. Um, I do think that you probably have to worry about patients with unstable psychiatric disease, active, not stable psychiatric disease, things like schizophrenia, et cetera. I would be concerned probably about giving it to those patients. You know, like we say this, I think with geriatric emergency medicine a lot, you know, start low, go slow. I think you can, again, this is not answered by the, by our study, but 
this is partly why our clinical guidelines are going to recommend 0.15 milligrams per kilogram over 0.3. I think you can start there and you, you can always repeat the dose if, if needed. And so, again, like you were saying, I think that, you know, you do have to be, keep in mind who was included in the study, who it generalizes to. And we had a very healthy population that we included in our study and we excluded people with, you know, serious comorbidities. And so, you know, if you want to use it in those patients, I would suggest using caution and starting out at a, um, at a low dose. Excellent. Completely unrelated to your study, but you mentioned avoiding it in our psychiatric patients. I wonder, I, I hear a lot of reports, especially out of Australia, using uh, ketamine as sedation and even as an antidepressant in psychiatric patients. Have you had any experience with that or any knowledge about using ketamine in those patients? Um, I have not, but I have just, you know, had a lot of conversations with people about that as, as ketamine seems that it's having more and more uh, uses lately. And I think for me, that's kind of outside of the scope that it, of what I'm familiar with. But you're right, there is a lot of evidence coming out now about treatment for depression and suicidal ideation. But I think that those are infusions and probably a very different protocol, different indication, and should probably be done you know, with co-management with a psychiatrist. Absolutely. It wasn't addressed in your study specifically, but we know that ketamine is used by some as a recreational drug. Have you had any experience with patients, quote unquote, ketamine seeking since you started using this in your department? No, not yet, Justin. But <laughs> um, all joking aside, I think this is actually a real concern for people when you mentioned introducing this drug into practice. You know, ketamine has a lot of baggage with it, and that's one of the big ones. And the goal of this line of research is not to send everyone, you know, tripping down a K-hole, but is rather to optimize pain control for the individual. And to do so, we must figure out who ketamine is most appropriate for. And I think that that will mitigate a lot of people's concerns about people, you know, drug seeking for ketamine. The other thing that makes it less likely is that, you know, ketamine is not readily available. Is there is... A, I do, I do believe there's oral ketamine, but it's not that we're going to be dispensing that from the emergency department. So I think that this is really we're talking about either in the emergency department or inpatient treatment with, with IV ketamine. And so I don't really see that as a concern right now, but I may be, may be wrong. So you mentioned choosing the right patients for low-dose ketamine. In your uh, experience, who are the patients that you would want to use this therapy in? Yeah, and I think this is kind of where the money is at in terms of this, you know, agenda. In my mind, this is not a first-line agent for pain control. In fact, um, you know, to be in our study, you had, you had to have moderate to severe pain at the time that you were approached for enrollment. And so by that very definition, anyone whose pain was adequately controlled with opioids would have been excluded from the study. And so, you know, we're already talking about then we enrolled people whose pain in most cases, was refractory to opioids. You know, not everybody got pre-treated with opioids, but some did. And then when I think of the use of ketamine down the road, I think of it for polytrauma patients, you know, these patients with really severe injuries whom respiratory depression could be potentially life-threatening or end in an intubation. And so I think low-dose ketamine has a real role in those patients, sickle cell patients, and then potentially even people with flares of chronic pain. And that's kind of getting into a little bit more that overlap between acute and chronic pain management. But I think that we may see something there, especially things like RSD, et cetera. So, and I think those are the populations that are of interest. Wonderful. So are you using low-dose ketamine routinely now in your department? Um, so I have and continue to use low-dose ketamine in my practice, and I'm actually in the process of working with our pharmacy to implement clinical practice guidelines for our nurses and providers. 
Um, since this is not a drug that has been routinely used in the emergency department for this purpose, at least at our institution, guidelines, I think, are a good and necessary step to ensuring safe and effective use. Are you able or willing to share your hospital's protocol with the listeners if you have one? So the protocol has not been finalized, but I can kind of give you a little bit of a preview of probably what it's going to look like. And again, this is pending approval from our pharmacy and therapeutic committee, et cetera. Um, but our guidelines likely recommend an initial starting dose of 0.15 milligrams per kilogram. Um, this it equates to about 10 to 15 milligrams for most adults. And as a slow IV push, probably something over the realm of two to five minutes. In addition, guidelines will likely recommend low-dose ketamine for patients with ongoing moderate to severe pain that is either refractory to opioids or where opioids are contraindicated. So again, not as a pure replacement for opioids. And we will also have recommendations to use caution with patients with unstable psychiatric disease, elderly patients, those with renal or liver dysfunction, and in those whom tachycardia or hypertension would be undesirable. And so that really just kind of mimics a lot of the inclusion criteria for our study and other studies that have been done along this line. Um, and so it's a conservative start, but I think that is a reasonable starting point. And again, these are guidelines. Now, some of you might be thinking that to get buy-in from your nursing staff to give ketamine IV to that renal colic patient will be difficult because they're used to giving it for procedural sedation under full monitoring, often with an RT present. Let's hear what Dr. Budwin has to say about monitoring the patient who's getting low-dose ketamine and how to get buy-in from your ED staff. I noticed that in your study, every patient was placed on a cardiac monitor. Do you think that that should be a requirement for the use of low-dose ketamine in the emergency department? Yeah, that's an interesting thought. I mean, I, I think I probably would until we have greater familiarity with the drug and more data on adverse events. These were not all patients that were on central telemetry, but just on bedside monitors. And, you know, again, it's conservative, it's a caution, but when you're introducing something new into practice, I think it's better to take a conservative route than to be more cavalier about it, especially if we're trying to make the argument that this is worthwhile to introduce into practice. You know, all it takes is one person off a monitor whose heart rate is 160 and no one notices. And then now, you know, we have a big problem with the way that the drug was introduced. Doctors are historically very slow adopters of new evidence. I find new treatments are especially hard to implement in the emergency department when you have to get buy-in from multiple groups such as pharmacy or our nursing colleagues. Do you have any thoughts on the best way to introduce low-dose ketamine to a physician or a nursing group in order to promote its uptake? Yeah, I mean, this is a, probably the biggest hurdle. You know, it's all well and good to read papers and read the evidence you're saying, but it's actually implementing it into clinical practice is the challenge. And I think education is probably the biggest one. So I know that even when we first did this study at our institution, we had to hold several educational sessions, both among our physician practice group, the residents, and as well as nursing. I went to several nursing change of shift rounds to present the study and to answer questions about its safety, administration, adverse events. That was a big hurdle, and it does take someone to kind of be a champion of that cause, just like anything else. And so I think that's what it takes within the departments is really somebody that's going to push it forward and do the education. And I think guidelines are a useful tool to standardize practice and to make sure, again, that we're doing things in a safe and effective manner. So now we come to the part of the podcast where we garner some of the social media comments that are made from around the world on this topic. So we pulled Twitter to find out some real-life experience and interpretation of the literature when it comes to low-dose ketamine. And we look to people with some more experience than us for some insight. 
So Dr. Ruben Strayer of the EM Updates blog writes, analgesic dose ketamine is extremely effective for pain in everyone, including opioid-tolerant patients, and I use it frequently for that indication. In a normal-sized adult, I recommend 20 milligrams over 10 minutes, and then 20 milligrams per hour titrated up or down to effect. Now, the 20 milligrams that Dr. Strayer is recommending is the same as the higher dose used in this study of the 0.3 milligrams per kilogram. And it's good to know that after the bolus wears off, which you'd expect to be between 30 minutes and two hours, that you can start a drip for ongoing analgesia. And Dr. Sergei Motov, who's written a few articles on ketamine, commented that there's about a 25 to 45% opioid sparing effect of low-dose ketamine based on Dr. Boudwin's study and on four other small studies. And finally, Min Le Kong from Australia mentioned that the U.S. military has started to use ketamine preferentially over morphine in the battlefield. He shared an RCT from Annals of Emergency Medicine of ketamine use in the pre-hospital setting for trauma, which concluded that IV morphine plus ketamine provides superior analgesia to IV morphine alone, but was associated with an increase in the rate of minor adverse effects, which is consistent with this study as well. Were there any behind-the-scenes surprises or interesting stories that didn't end up making it into the manuscript that you would like to share with us? Sure. Two patients strike out for me. One, and again, this hints at how polarizing ketamine can be, one of the first participants that we enrolled, um, who we later found out was in the ketamine arm, came up to their treating physician at the end of the study. And as they were leaving, they told the treating physician that they had never felt this good in their life and they could they get something to go home with. <laughs> and uh, maybe that's your, maybe that is your, actually your first ketamine seeking patient. I don't know. And then the flip of that actually was a patient who had had a very negative experience and said that it was scary and felt a loss of control. And I think we put that quote in the manuscript. But then the second thing that they said is that they felt like they had been stuck in a field with flower and bees attacking them. And again, that gets at this hint of dysphoria. And it's like, you know, we all chuckle, flower and bees attacking you, like, ha ha ha, that sounds terrible. But it actually was very scary for this person and gets at kind of these two very, like, you know, again, polarizing experiences with being dysphoric on, on ketamine. So I, I do, I think that that is a, is a potential concern, but also a little bit of a funny story. So my bottom line when it comes to low dose ketamine is that I'm going to use it at a dose of about 0.2 milligrams per kilogram IV over two to five minutes in the pretty common situation of the adult patient who's received seven or 10 milligrams of morphine, and who still has moderate to severe pain, a score of more than five from whatever cause. As long as they have no history of coronary disease, they aren't known to have a psychiatric disorder and aren't off the charts tachycardic, I'm going to give ketamine. I might choose ketamine for analgesia if the patient's blood pressure is in the boots as well, as morphine, of course, might worsen the blood pressure and ketamine usually improves blood pressure, at least transiently, and it makes me feel better. The other patient that I might choose ketamine for is the patient in which I want the analgesic effect to start working ASAP because the onset of analgesic action is faster with ketamine than with morphine. But 
Again, these are small studies. I'm waiting for the big RCT comparing ketamine alone to morphine alone before I go gangbusters on giving ketamine instead of morphine to every patient with moderate to severe pain in the ED without obvious contraindications to ketamine. So ketamine in my book is sort of ready for prime time, but only in the particular situation of morphine failure. I need more robust studies to convince me to use ketamine as a replacement of the tried and true morphine. So I think I'd like to echo your skepticism on whether or not we can immediately apply this yet. I think my reservations here and the take-home message I'd like to raise is that when you're giving a medication, you should really know and be very intimately aware of the side effect profile and the adverse events that can happen when you give the medication. And I think that at this dose, it's not clear to me what that side effect profile is. And there's that very promising 500 patient retrospective study that kind of maybe gives us some of the incidents of things, but I'm not sure that I have the experience right now and the prospective data to be able to really say in my patient population how often someone's going to have a very bad ketamine experience versus a very good one. So I think that with any medication, the importance is not only to know the indication to give it, but also what you might unintentionally cause in your patients when you give it. So I think that that's my one hesitation for putting this in my practice like tomorrow. I think that this is something that can translate into practice currently, but obviously we've left a lot of question marks. So I do think this supports, you know, turning around and using low-dose ketamine in practice in addition to a very substantial body of surgical literature that exists. You know, obviously our patients aren't exactly the same, but... I think this does support low-dose ketamine's use in practice for management of acute pain. Well, that almost wraps it up for this month's Journal Jam. I want to thank Dr. Budwin and Dr. Morgenstern and Teresa for a great job done. By the time this podcast hits the air, we will most likely have the new EM Cases ebook on trauma and MSK, which incorporates all the podcasts we've done on trauma and MSK and a nice case-based Q&A ebook that's really interactive with all kinds of great links. And that should be finally available on iTunes any day now. So if you don't have that download, just check out the iBooks in iTunes and get your free copy. So Teresa and I will leave you with one more thought. Let's keep on jamming on the Journal Jam. Remember, you don't have to nerd out alone. Together, Together we're, we're smarter. smarter.